You guys may be seated. We're going to let our kiddos head down the hall for Children's Church this morning. And uh, we're going to continue in here in our study in the book of First John. So if you brought your Bibles and you want to uh, turn to First John, we'll be in chapter 3 today. I want to uh, just say a word of thanks to all of our ladies that gathered for the Christmas party this past week. Uh, one of the things I love about our ladies is that when they gather together for Christmas stuff, uh, and, and when they gather together each time, they, they do so with a heart looking outward and a heart for our, our community. And uh, each Christmas, we, um, we've kind of adopted, it sounds maybe strange to some, but we've adopted the, uh, the dancers down the street at the strip club as a, um, a group of people that we want to minister to and what we want to to encourage. And so this year at a Christmas party, our ladies made 16 Christmas baskets that we will deliver um, down the road um, to the place called Angels. And it's a gift for each of the ladies that works there. They're somebody's daughter, uh, somebody's wife, maybe. And we want to be able to encourage them and let them know that they are loved and that, uh, that we want a relationship with them. And so uh, I'm just thankful for our ladies that always look outward and always find a way to, uh, to take a time that they get to spend together and to use that to encourage somebody else in the faith. And so thank you, ladies, for doing that this year and for uh, always having a heart for that kind of thing. In the book of 1 John, as we return to our study in the book of 1 John, John uses a lot of metaphors to compare and contrast what the Christian life is like uh, as compared to a life outside of Christ. Uh, he uses the imagery of light and darkness. Uh, he uses a contrast of righteousness and sinfulness. Uh, he compares truth and lies, uh, knowing God and not knowing God, and then the, the purity that comes from knowing Christ versus the sinfulness and the selfishness that we experienced apart from that. Uh, one of the things that will help us today as we progress in this study and we look at this passage is to, to maybe rethink what we view as sinfulness. When we began to think of sinfulness and unrighteousness and lawlessness, many times we tend to, or at least I do, we tend to think of the big sins that we, we label. Uh, you realize that there's no such thing as a big sin and a little sin, right? That all sin is sin in God's eyes. But when we think of, of sinfulness and we think of evil and we think of those things, we always tend to think of the worst case scenario. And we end up patting ourselves on the back because we're not like them. But the reality is every one of us struggle with sin. Every one of us have our own issues that we wrestle with every single day. And, and my little sin is just as bad as somebody else's big sin, right? Uh, the sin of pride, the sin of all these things that we can hide on the inside and disguise are, are just as evil and just as wicked as, as somebody that goes out and does something that makes the evening news. And so as we read through this today, I don't want you to, to think about this message as a message for somebody else, but I want you to see it as a message for us as believers, and a message for, for those who may still not know Jesus Christ, because John is, is going to again begin to contrast the, the difference between what a believer's life should look like and, and what the, the, the life of somebody who doesn't know Jesus looks like. The recent studies and recent surveys that have been taken uh, are kind of discouraging to say that, that when we survey people in, in, the, in the public general, that there's not much difference in the behavior today of a believer or one that professes faith in Christ, and one who denies faith in Christ. Uh, there are those who deny faith in Christ that may be generous. Those who deny faith in Christ who may be kind to their neighbor, who may help somebody down the road. 
Uh, and, and, and so there's little difference in, in the mind of many people between those who call themselves Christians and those who do not. And, and John's going to say to us that there ought to be a stark difference between those two. Um, and so we finished up chapter 2 last week. I want us to begin this morning in chapter 3. And so chapter 3, verse 1 says this. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Let me stop right there and say this. Uh, it's easy to read that phrase, oh, you know, what, what love God's poured out on us that we can become children of God. But I want you to think of how the Bible described us before we came to Christ. The Bible says that we were enemies of God before we became children of God. And so this love of God, John is saying, has transformed us from being enemies of God to being not just friends of God, not just acquaintances of God, but to become children of God. So that what God does is God has made his children out of his enemies. He is, he is pulled from this pool of enemies and he has made into his family these children. Uh, not one child of God was not at one time an enemy of God. Every child of God at one time or another used to be an enemy of God. Every one of us that, that profess this faith in Jesus Christ, according to the, the word of God, used to be an enemy of God. We were sinful. We were wicked. We were selfish. And, and that doesn't just cease the moment that we become believers, but we enter into this process called sanctification where God begins to, to rid us of our old behavior and begins to create new desires and new behaviors in us. And so what Jesus does is begin this transformation process when we come to Christ. But it begins with him making us his child. He comes to us and he creates in us a brand new heart. And he makes us into his child. If you've got your Bibles, you want to flip with me. In, in John chapter 15, uh, verse 13, uh, John writes about this uh, becoming the, the child of God and how that it, it begins to change our lives and what he did to make us his child. He says in, in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus did that for us. He laid down his life for us. And in that process, we got to become the children of God. So what kind of love was it that, that the Father has given to us? It was a sacrificial love. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he what? That he gave his only begotten son. That's the heart of the gospel, is, is that we were enemies of God, and instead of God treating us as enemies, God treated us with great love. He treated us with love in the sense that he would send his son to die on the cross for us. And so no greater love has anyone than this, that he would lay down his life for another. And so Jesus laid down his life for us. And it's this love that the Father showed us that invited us and called us to become his children. So that's where this relationship starts. And that's the thing that we're going to see today that begins. It's, it's the root that's going to produce the fruit. And if there's no root, then there's not going to be fruit. And so what happens is that we, we got to be called the children of God. Once an enemy, but now a child. We've been born of God. And he says, and so we are. Now remember who he's writing this to and what, he's, what, what John's trying to combat. He's combating this Gnosticism that, that, that kind of split the world and said, okay, everything spiritual is good and everything fleshly or earthly or filled with matter is evil. So anything that's, that's, that's spiritual is good. Anything that's, that's fleshly is, is evil. And, and I don't mean fleshly like sinful, but I mean fleshly like skin and bones. 
So these Gnostics were teaching that, that the spiritual was good, that the flesh was bad. So it was okay if your flesh just did what it wanted to do, because that's what flesh does. As long as your heart is, is right, then you're good. What John's going to try to say is that your heart can't be good if your flesh is still bad. Because you don't separate those two. Those two things go together. And so John's going to show us today that, that God has, has made us his children, that we already are his children, and that there's a distinction between us and those who don't know Jesus Christ. Some people want to blame Christianity and say, well, you Christians just think that it's something exclusive. And I would have to agree with that. Because the Word of God says that there is a difference between those who are Christians and those who are not. There's a different loyalty between those who belong to Christ. Our loyalty is to, is to the Lord. And, and, and there's a different loyalty for those who are not. And so as he begins to unfold this today, he says, listen, there's, there's a reason that the world doesn't know us. And the reason is that it didn't know Christ. So look back at, at, at verse 1. The Father has given us his love. He's made us his children, and, and, and we are that. And, and this is the reason, he says, why the world does not know us is the fact that it did not know him. So he doesn't say the world doesn't know who we are, but it's this, this, this word know here is that word gnosis, and it's, again, a play on words for this group called the Gnostics, which drew their name from this belief that they had some kind of secret knowledge. So he says, the world doesn't know us. It's not in relationship with us. It can't relate to us because it never related to Jesus. Verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Again, this is a jab kind of at the Gnostics. They were saying, you're not really a, a Christian. You're not really a, 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 a believer unless you have our knowledge. So you can, you can believe what you want to about Jesus. And, and part, of their, part of their deficiency in their, in their belief was that that. That which was spiritual was separate from that which was physical. So when, when the Christians taught and when Jesus taught that Jesus was God in the flesh, he was the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, they said that's impossible because God could never take on flesh because flesh is evil and God's good. And so they had this dichotomy that, that took place, and he's trying to say to them that's not true at all. The world doesn't understand because the world didn't know Jesus. They didn't know who Jesus was, and they were not in relationship with him. But we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, what he's saying is we're already in the family of God. We are already children of God now. But what God's got planned for us and what God's going to do for us, we still can't fully grasp. We can't fully understand the things that God has planned for those who are his own. The, the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard. The Bible says, nor has it even entered into the heart of man. All that God has in store for those who belong to him. And, and that's what John's trying to say here. He says, listen, don't believe this lie that you've got to have a certain kind of knowledge, a certain kind of uh, special secret knowledge in order to become a believer. We are already believers in Christ now. And what all that God has stored for us has not yet appeared. It's not yet known. But we know this, that when he appears... We will be like him because we will see him as he is. So there's coming a day, and this, this process begins at, at spiritual birth. It begins when a person comes to know Jesus in a personal way. Now, that doesn't just mean that you attend a church or that you join a church, but that you come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I want to say this. We said it before, but I want to remind you, you could join Crossroads Baptist Church and still go to hell. Joining a church does not make you a Christian. 
You could join every church in town, every church in the world, and still die without Jesus because it's not the church that gets you to heaven. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what he's trying to say here is that we are God's children because we're in this relationship with Christ. And all that he has stored, uh, in store for us has, has not yet appeared. We don't fully understand it, but we know this, that when he appears... And as he reveals himself more and more to us, we will become more and more like him as we understand him better, as we see him face to face, or as he is. And then he says this, there is a result that comes from seeing Jesus face to face. Some people ask, why why do y'all preach Jesus every single week? There's a reason. The more we understand about Jesus the more we can become like Jesus. Now, we'll never be the Savior of the world, and we're not meant to be little gods. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying this, we ought to take on the character of Christ. The more I understand who Jesus was and how he related not only to his friends and to his family, but also to his enemies, that transforms how I relate to my friends and to my family and to my enemies. When I look at him and I see him face to face and I watch the way that he treats the world, the way that he loves the world, the way that he laid down his life for those around him, it provides me a model that I'm to follow, that I am to imitate, and then I can become more and more like him. And John is building upon that concept here. He's saying, listen, we're God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know this, that when he appears, when, when, when we get a, a better glimpse of him, whether it's more and more now as we study God's word and we understand God's word now, or whether it's that final day when we finally see him face to face in person at the resurrection, we will be like him, for we will see him like he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Again, contrasting the teaching of the Gnostics who had kind of invaded that church and then tried to draw people away. And they're saying, don't worry about your flesh. Don't worry about the sinful things you do in the body. Just try to keep your your heart right. And he's saying, listen, if Jesus captures your heart, he captures all of you. And and if you profess to be this believer, you put your hope in Christ, then you're going to purify yourself as Jesus is pure. The greatest desire of a Christian ought not to be rich. It ought not to even be healthy. The greatest desire of a believer ought to be to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Now, I would tell you this, before I became a Christian, that was not my desire. I had other desires that took priority over that. Now, I wanted to look moral, and I wanted to look good, and I wanted to impress people with my morality, but it wasn't because I loved Jesus. It's because I just wanted the world to like me, and I wanted the world to respect me. But here he's saying that when Jesus moves in and we place our hope in him, there is something that transforms in our heart. There ought to be something that changed inside of you when you invited Christ to be your Savior. There ought to be this new heart, this new desire that flows out of you because Jesus lives in you. And so he that has this hope in Christ will try to purify himself as Christ is pure. Now, again, it's not a religion of works, okay? But our desires change. Philippians 2.13 said it's God that works in us both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. And there's that, that combination. He changes my, my, my will. He, he gives me the willpower then to be able to do the things that he's called me to do. So it's God that works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And as a believer, we ought to have that desire inside of us. One of the things that John's going to, to get to in this passage is this. He's going to say... 
If you can still live like you lived before you met Jesus and claim that you know Jesus and yet there's no evidence of anything that's ever changed, your heart hasn't changed, your behavior hasn't changed, your desires have not changed, then you're probably fooling yourself to think you're in a relationship with Jesus. Because when we come into a relationship with Christ, he takes and transforms our heart. It's not an instant transformation, but it's a process where God begins to transform our hearts and the things that we used to live for are no longer that important to us. But what becomes most important to us is that we represent Christ in everything that we do. Doesn't mean I can't be rich. Doesn't mean that I can't have a, a great business. It doesn't mean that I can't do things in this world that'll make a difference. It just means I do them for a different reason and I do them for the glory of God. So he's saying here, you're going to purify yourself because that's Christ is pure and your desire is to become more and more like Jesus. So verse four, look what he says. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness for sin is lawlessness. Now, now watch here. Those who make it a practice of sinning, It doesn't say that if you're a Christian and you sin, that you're not a Christian. But when that is our lifestyle, that is our our, our consistent behavior, that I can sin and sin and sin and sin and never feel conviction for that, never feel repentance for that, never be sorry for that, never want to turn away from that. I'm okay with the sin that I've always lived and I've always experienced, and I'm comfortable in that sin. He says if that's the case, then something's wrong. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, living apart from the law of God, because sin is living apart from God's law. And he says, you know that he appeared, Jesus appeared, in order to take away our sin, and in him there is no sin. So Jesus came, and he lived to destroy the work of Satan, to destroy the work of him, to take away the sins of our lives. But he doesn't just come to offer us a blanket forgiveness that we can continue to live any way that we want to live. He comes to transform us and to change us. Does that make sense? That what Jesus did, he didn't just die on the cross to say, okay, you're forgiven, and now you live the way you want to live. Jesus died to change us in our very core. He died to to make us different than who we were before. And as we discover this great love that God has poured out upon us that gives us the right and the privilege to be called children of God because that's who we are, That love poured out on us ought to begin to transform the way that we view our relationship with God and the way that we view our relationship with others. So he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Again, contrasting the teachings of the Gnostics who said that Jesus could not be God in the flesh because flesh is evil. He said, no, he was in the flesh. He came, and he was here, and he came to take away sins because in him there is no sin. Sin. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes about this, and he talks about this this difference that Jesus has made to take away our sins and, and the fact that he came in the flesh and did this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want to begin in verse 17. He said, if anyone is in Christ, that means they become a believer in Christ, okay? They put their faith and their trust in Jesus. If anyone's in Christ, he is what? A new creation, okay? Christ has recreated our hearts. He's recreated us. So if anyone is is truly in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's been put to death. And behold, the new has come. It's been born. 
That's why the Bible talks about salvation as being reborn, okay? We're born into the flesh, uh, into these bodies, but we are born again spiritually. And so the old has passed away, and, and the new has, has come. And all of this is from God. It's not something that we do. It's something that God does, who through Christ reconciled or brought us back to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. So not only did he call us back to himself, but he's given us this ministry of helping call other people back into relationship with God. And this, and that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or their sins against them, but he's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So therefore, we're ambassadors of Christ. God is making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, to be brought back to God. That's our gospel message. What, what is the message of the church? It's for the world to be reconciled to God. How is that done? That's done as a person recognizes that they're sinners, that what they deserve is hell, but what God has offered to us is salvation. And so the message is to be reconciled to God. And then he says this, for our sake, so for us, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How did God bring about this change and this transformation for us? How did he forgive our sins and take away our sins and, and do all that? He did it by sending Christ in the flesh to take upon himself our sins, to bear the burden of our sins, to take upon himself the punishment of our sins. And so he that knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. That's how much God loves us, is that he would give his son to die on the cross, that our sins might be placed upon Jesus, that he might carry our sins away, and that we might be forgiven, and that we might become a child of of God. And so that's what Jesus has done for us. He's, he, has, he has done that. He, he has, uh, has come and made us God's child. So he, he sent his son, and in him there is no sin. And then look what he says. This is a transformation now. We're back in 1 John. We're back in 1 John, verse, verse 6. He says, No one who abides in him, in Christ, keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, the, the tense that he's using here is this tense of a continual lifestyle of sin. That's what he says when he, when he means he keeps on sinning. Not that you keep on having mistakes or that you keep on each day you, you, you stumble or you fall. But you, you have this consistent lifestyle of sin that, that you're like okay with. And he says here, no one who abides in Jesus. So you can't live in Christ and live in sin at the same time. You can't abide in him and abide in sin, is what he's trying to say here in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So to know Christ is to be changed by Christ. And if I can live the way I did before I said I met Jesus, and sin doesn't bother me and there's no conviction of the Holy Spirit when I sin, then something is missing in our lives. Verse 7. He said, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness, that's a lifestyle of righteousness, is righteous as he, as Jesus, is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So why did Jesus come? He came to transform us, to destroy the work of Satan, to destroy the grip that Satan had on us. The Bible says that before we became believers, we were prisoners of sin. But Jesus broke those chains and he set us free. And he did so that we might live a different life. And so he's going to contrast this. He says, let no one deceive you, okay? Because you can't abide in him and keep on sinning. And if you abide in him, I mean, if you keep on sinning, then you haven't known him yet. And he says, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness, there's the root, is righteous, just as he is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But Jesus came to destroy that grip that sin had on us. Some people will say, well, I didn't want to do it, but the devil made me do it. Not if you're a believer. You can't say the devil made you do it. You say the devil tempted you, but you had a choice in this. Before we came to Christ, we were prisoners of sin. We, 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 didn't, we didn't have the freedom to break loose of that on our own. But Jesus came and set us free. And he gave us a freedom to be able to walk away from our past, to walk away from our sin, to walk away from all of that. Listen, there's a lot of programs out there that can help you to break free from addictions and stuff like that. And, and those programs are really, really cool. But here's the thing that keeps you out of that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's what keeps us from going back to our old way of life. And he says Jesus came to be able to break that hold that Satan had on our lives. To the point that we see that Jesus came and, and broke those chains. He came to destroy that work. In Matthew chapter 7, I know I'm taking you a lot of different places today, but there's so much scripture that supports what John's saying here. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 23. He says that we can know the difference between a believer and a non-believer by looking at the fruit that's hanging in their life. So in, in, in John seven fifteen, he says, Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Remember the Gnostics? He's talking about groups like that that come in and teach something that's contrary to God's words. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer would be no. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire, and thus you'll recognize them by their fruits. But not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. A lot of people that will profess to be Christians that don't have a relationship with Jesus yet. And he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Here's the difference. What's the difference between a believer and a non-believer? Not just what we say, but it's how we live. It's that living from a transformed heart. Look at this. It, it, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here's some guys that evidently were pretty big in the church, doing some pretty uh, amazing type things that they would, they, would, they would prophesy and they would heal and they would cast out demons and do other things like that that would just leave people in awe. 
But Jesus says even those types of things are not the things that get you to heaven. What gets you to heaven is a relationship with Jesus. And in this case, Jesus says, we never had that relationship. I never knew you. So it's all about the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And you know a person by the fruit of their lives. We, we live in a world that says that we, we can't judge anybody anymore. And, and, and there is a whole lot of judgment that goes on that's, that's not healthy. I, I can't judge your heart. I can't judge your motives. But Scripture calls us to look at the fruit and to say, is that fruit biblical fruit? Is that the fruit that is the fruit of God's Spirit being present? Or is that the fruit of the flesh being in control? And John's trying to say to us here, you can't have your flesh in control and God's Spirit in control. When God moves into our hearts, we relinquish control to Him. We let Him lead our lives. And as He begins to lead our lives, then then the fruit on the outside begins to change. So, he says, Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, no one born of God makes it a practice of sinning. For God's seed, or God's spirit, if you will, abides in him. And he cannot just keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So his heart's been changed. The spirit of God is now living within him. And a good test for you and for me is is what happens when I sin? When you sin and disobey the Lord, is, is the Holy Spirit there convicting you and saying to you, man, this was not right. Shouldn't have talked to your wife that way. You shouldn't have treated your neighbor that way. You shouldn't have done this or you shouldn't have done that. Is the Holy Spirit present convicting you when you fall short? He ought to be because that's part of his responsibility if he's living in you. And so he's saying that that if you are really a born-again child of God, you shouldn't be able to just live a life of sin without any kind of conviction because God's Spirit's living inside of you. And you've been born of God. You've been spiritually reborn. And he says, by this it is evident who the children of God are. So by this process of having the Holy Spirit convict us of our sin, it it becomes evident who the children of God are and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He's about to transition into this passage, and we'll look at it next week, about it, what, it, what it means to love one another and how important that is and how that, that's a piece of the, the fruit that we should see hanging on a believer's life. If you're a believer and if God's Spirit lives inside of you, there ought to be this evidence of love in your life and not just hatred. So many Christians are known for what they are against. We need to be known for the love that we show. Jesus says, by this will all men know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, there ought to be a love and a compassion inside of us that when the world bumps into us, that oozes out and they see it and they sense it and they know us by our love. So there's a difference between those who are believers and those who are not. Uh, There are many that the Bible says here will infiltrate the church and pretend to be one thing but to be something completely different. Back in Matthew, it says there's going to be many that, that pretend to be part of the sheep, but they're ravenous wolves. And he says the way that you know them is by their fruit. Let me ask you this morning, what kind of fruit is there in your life? What kind of fruit is, is evident when people look at you? 
Do they hear of all the things that you're against? Do they hear of all the things that you dislike? Or do they hear and see in you this, this, this living, loving relationship that you have with Christ? Do they look at your life and they say, I can't see any difference in your life and, and in the life of a lost person? Or is there marks of the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians chapter 5 gives us two completely different lists. The fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, gentleness and meekness and self-control. That's the fruit of God's Spirit living inside of us. But then it also contrasts that with the fruit of the flesh, which is all kinds of sinful stuff. In our world today, the world needs to be able to see the stark contrast between the presence of God living inside of us and the absence of God. That, that's a mark of those that don't know Jesus. Our job as believers, guys, is to let God do the work that he wants to do inside of us so that he can produce the fruit that he wants to produce so that the world can see the difference in us. The Gnostics were saying, listen, there doesn't need to be any kind of outward difference. As long as your spirit's fine, you ought to be fine. You can live any way that you want to live as long as your spirit is fine. There are some in the church today that will say, listen, all you need to do is say this little prayer. Come and get baptized in church, and when you die, you'll go to heaven. And that's a dangerous message. What has to take place for us to to know that one day we will stand in the presence of God is for us to admit that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. To allow the Holy Spirit to come and to indwell us and to change us and to transform us more and more and more into the image of God. That's what it means to be a believer is that I have surrendered the, 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 the reins of my life to God. Not that I said some little prayer, not that I even got wet and got baptized, but that I entered into a personal relationship with Jesus. And that personal relationship with Jesus begins to transform us day by day by day, more and more into the image of God. Will we still slip and fall and sin? Absolutely. I do that all the time. But you know what? I can tell you this. When I sin, there's a conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, Rob, that was not right. You were prideful. You were arrogant. You were mean. You were selfish. And at that moment, I've got to stop and I've got to say, Lord, you're right. I didn't represent you well in that situation. And I need you to change that part of me and make me more and more like Jesus. That's the heart of a true believer who says, I want to be more like Jesus every day. I want to surrender every part of my life to him so that he can produce the fruit that will bring him glory. And that's what we live for, is to bring God glory. So John says there's a difference. You you can't just say, I'm going to live any way I want to live, and one day I'll go to heaven. That's not true. In fact, those that say that, he says, are just fooling themselves. The truth is not in them. So let me encourage you to look at your life and, and... And maybe even be bold enough to ask somebody else, do you see fruit in me that ought to be there for for a believer? Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you when you fall short. And if you've never begun that personal relationship with Jesus, man, I encourage you, let's talk. Let's talk about what that relationship can look like and how that, that simple act of just surrender to the Lord can be the, the first step of this brand new journey where you walk 
with the Lord. You learn from the Lord, and you become more and more like him as you reach out to the lost world as well. Okay? Let's, let's pray together, and then we'll sing another song. Lord, I thank you that you do this work of transforming us. It's not just me becoming good. But it's you changing my heart. Jesus, when you, when you moved in, you began this work of changing who I am at my core. And some days I do better than other days. Some days I, I get it right. Most days I, I fall short. But I thank you that even when I fall short, your Holy Spirit is right there convicting me and calling me right back into that deep relationship with you. Lord, I pray for those who have made a profession of faith but have never, ever begun to see change take place in their life. They're still who they were before, but they've got a false assurance. They've got a a false hope that everything's okay when it's not. And Lord, that's not for me to judge. It's not for me to determine but I just pray out of your kindness and out of your goodness, God, that if, if, if they don't have what they say that they have, that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction to their heart. And that even today, they would call out to you and they would ask you to begin this work in them that would be different. A work in them that would make a huge difference in the way that they live and the things that they live for. That the world would begin to see this transformation take place in us that identifies us as your children. Lord, John says here in this, in this book that it's not just in our behavior, but it's in our attitude toward others. It's going to be, as we see next week, this love that you generate for even for our enemies. So we need you to do that work, and we ask that you would. And I pray for those that don't yet know you, that, Lord, that they might come to understand their need for you, that they might want to be in relationship with you so that when they breathe their final breath and they stand before you, everything will be well and everything will be just as they hoped it would. So I ask you now to to guide us in this time of reflection and decision, and I pray that you would just uh, work on our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.